This is Isaiah 58, 10 through 12. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will, continue, will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairers of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. So what we're going to do over, over the next few weeks is we're going to frame out for you a series that uh, at its heart is going to be about mission and about the mission of God. Uh, most people uh, that I talk to, I, I think, would say that they feel at least some sort of a conviction that they're called to do something to help make the world a better place. Uh, for Christians, that conviction usually is deeply rooted in something to do with the gospel, something to do with sharing Jesus and bringing the good news of a great God who sent his only son to die for the sins of the world, um, to reconcile the world back to him. And then, of course, we know as the church, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So we've been given the job of reconciling people back to God, back to Jesus. Uh, that's our mission. Um, but, but though most people live with that sense of conviction that they're destined to do something great. In a lot of cases, the world just throws so many things at us that debilitate us and knock us off course. And they steal our joy and they steal our time and they steal our drive and our motivation. And then we have those really defining moments in life. The ones that kind of change the whole course of where we're going and who we're becoming and the ones that change the way that we see the world or at least the way that we see a certain aspect of the world and the way that we see, um, the way that we see others. Um, one thing that I've kind of noticed over, over time um, as be being a pastor and as us being in Detroit and throughout our journey of ministry, the one thing that I've noticed is that as people get older, uh, typically they either become more loving and more gracious or they become more angry and more bitter. And it's basically how they, through the course of their lives, through the accumulation of their lives, how they respond to the same types of scenarios and the same types of situations. Because the older you get, the more re you realize how cold people can be. Like the older you get, the more you realize how unbalanced the world is and how off things really are. And that can make you really angry. And to a degree, it should make everybody somewhat angry. Like there's a part of that that we need to like rise up and realize there's injustice that we need to fight against but we also have to realize internally we have to still be able to find the joy of the Lord like we talked about we did that whole series on that and for a lot of people um, it just seems like the more and more hopeless things become before long you find yourself being that cold person that you encountered at the grocery store or you become that angry father that you grew up with Whatever it might be for you and in your life and in your scenarios. Or you can, you can see the hurt and it can totally destroy you, debilitate you, knock you off course. Or some people do go the other way and, and, and they see the hurt and yet you continue to live your life being moved by that hurt and moved to action by that hurt. So much so that the only thing that you can do, you can even, the only thing you can even imagine is doing things to make the world a better place 
for the next generation so that the next generation doesn't have to experience the same types of hurts and pains that we've had to experience in our day. See, that's what love can do. But everybody in one way or another has experiences of trauma in their lives. Experiences that leave a deep scar on your heart. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk begins his book, The Body Keeps the Score, with this, uh, with this, this is the first paragraph of his book. This is the very first thing that he says. Um, he says, one does not have to be a combat soldier or visit a refugee camp in Syria or the Congo to encounter trauma. Trauma happens to us, our friends, our families, our neighbors. Research by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has shown that one in five Americans was sexually molested as a child. One in four was beaten by a parent to the point of a mark being left on their body. One in three couples engaged in physical violence. A quarter of us grew up with alcoholic relatives and one out of eight witnessed their mother being beaten or hit. You know, for Don and I, as a married couple and as a family, because we've, you know, we've been on a very long journey leading us to where we are here in ministry, I would say one of our first major encounters with trauma was in New York. Uh, we, you know, some of you know the story. We lived in Rockaway Beach, uh, about two houses from the ocean. We just rented a little apartment there uh, when Hurricane Sandy destroyed our entire town. And what we did during that night, we stayed that night and we watched out our window as like the entire neighborhood, not even far from us, just started burning to the ground. Like houses all over the place were burning. Uh, there was so much water that they couldn't get fire trucks there, so they had to take boats to get to it. So like we literally watched out our window as houses burned and uh, uh, the fires literally bounced from house to house and all the cars got so filled with water that uh, the alarms started going off in these cars and they got distorted as the water just filled them and just everywhere, just crazy sounds. It was insane. Uh, and then waking up the next morning and walking outside and there being no more streets, everything was just sand and then cars were all flipped over and people were looting every house and every store that was, had nobody in it. And uh, there was no gas stations, there was no power, the bridges were all closed, there were military trucks everywhere, there's no cell phone service. So that was kind of the experience we woke up to the next morning. But if I'm being completely honest with you, and her and I kind of talked about that, like we don't sit there at our house and think about cars upside down or about sand and all that. Um, like, it's not like this traumatic experience that like every day I think about that. That's not, really, that's not really what happened. I don't wake up thinking about floods and waters or fires, even though I saw all those things. But the thing that probably actually left the biggest scar, um, and actually the scar is kind of, was kind of redeemed in some ways, but um, and this is more a me problem than anybody else, but I was really affected by the way the church responded to that event. The way that, particularly the way that like, even the church that we were a part of responded. Because our church um, scrambled when that happened to get as many people there as possible, to bring as much help as possible. It was amazing. Like, from, from, it was exactly what it should have been because our church doesn't even minister to that community. Like in New York, our church was in Manhattan. We lived in the Rockaways. And yet they saw our need. And so they literally mobilized and repositioned everybody and came and helped us for several weeks. Yet... Um, Yet, even after all that, um, there was a time when eventually the teams had to stop and the work wasn't even close to being done. There were still walls that needed to be rebuilt. There was still just so much uh, to do. And I remember like being really frustrated 
and being like, why you guys, how could you guys leave? Because I, you know, because obviously in my mind, I'm thinking this need is just so great here. And yet the church is going and doing other things, but the church also has a mission. And of course, now that we're in, Don and I are where we are and we sit in the chair that we have now, we know one of the hardest parts about doing ministry is knowing you can only do what God has graced you to do. And if you try to solve every single problem in the entire world, you're going to end up emotionally, spiritually, and financially bankrupt. And you're not going to be able to help anybody. So you do have to kind of find your lane. But I remember that really kind of affected me for a little while. Like, of like, why we almost felt abandoned even though we weren't. That's just the way my mind worked. Then when we moved to Detroit, just to give you guys, I'm going to give you like a Cliff Notes thing. And then throughout this series, we're going to kind of touch back on a few more of these things. When we moved to Detroit, our first week here, we rented an Airbnb. It was like, like $11 a night. It was $14 a night was what it was, I think. Our family piled into one room of this um, apartment of somebody's house on like the second level, just a few blocks from here. It was close to the church. And we shared it with like this guy who rented it all the time. And he was just like in the living room and we were in the bedroom. It was just a little bit awkward. It was really gross. It's everything you think of when you think of Detroit if you didn't know Detroit, like now that I'm here and understand it doesn't always, it's not all like this, it's a little different, but that was that first experience, right? Then finally we rented a loft in Corktown, and then many of you know this, our first floor uh, loft, our kids were right by the window, and our very first, um, I'm sorry, not our first night, like a few months into our time there, somebody just lit our van on fire, like literally right outside the kid's window, and so like they're sitting there watching our van burn down, and so they threw a firebomb in the thing, and we're like, what is going on? Um, that same week, a few, uh, I remember this very, very well, it was, near, it was almost Christmas time, and that same week we went to see Santa in the mall, and the mall we were at, uh, there was a shooting right near the Santa Claus thing, that like a few minutes after we had left it, and we were still in the mall, and as we were trying to leave the mall, like the police were raiding it from every direction, and shutting the whole thing down, and all the, all the uh, doors, uh, you know how like the gates of the mall go down, they were all closing as like the cops from every angle were coming in like you need to get out of here it was you know kind of crazy stuff for our kids that was this all the very first few months of us living in Detroit with uh the first Christmas of being here December 23rd we had someone from our church we had this little group me chat group of like accountability at that time and somebody from our church posted that they were going to commit suicide on the, on right before Christmas on our, on our group B. And then, so all of us scrambled and we went and we met this guy and we talked him out of it. It was, you know, God was there. You know, those things happened. And we, we talked through it with him. It was like really, really good. And then the next day on Christmas Eve, he calls just me and he's back in the exact same place again. And now I'm by myself trying to sort this out. And I'd never been a pastor before. I'd never dealt with anything like this before. I was like super, super uh, overwhelmed. And I'm here, I am just trying to kind of deal with it uh, all on my own. Uh, only a few weeks after that, again, this is, we're all within our first year. We went through this really difficult season. And again, this is one that someday I'll probably have to really flesh out because it probably of everything, this messed me up the most. We had, we, we had, we were building a team here and we had somebody uh, in our church uh, who was close to Don and I, who had suffered greatly from PTSD. He was in the war. And um, at one point, for whatever reason, during this time, something kind of turned on me from, that, um, from, from what he was going through. And he started sending us these weird messages, and he'd show up at our house. And I actually got a lot of fear that was started to get built up in me from this situation. Um, and then, of course, literally during that same period of time, um, when I was already fearful for a lot of weird reasons, uh, is when, and again, I know a lot of you know that this happened, um, 
uh, I was outside my house prepping a sermon one day, and then my next-door neighbor came out and started screaming, help me call 911. My grandma was bit by the dog. And so I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll help. I'll call 911. I called 911, and it was busy because it's Detroit, and we get a busy signal when we call 911 here. Um, I had to call like five times. Finally, I got through, and then they w- told me, well, the ambulance is on the way, but can you please help go in? Uh, we'll walk you through CPR. So I run into this house, and I see that this woman had been mauled literally to death by this dog. And in my next door neighbor, by, who had these four dogs, and literally my kids right next to where my kids play, and I'm like, like, okay, that I can't do CPR. Like, you know, it, that was kind of one of those things where that just sort of screwed me up a little bit. Now that's just the Cliff Notes version of a few of the things that we've been through, um, and that doesn't include this year. This year, this last year was really crazy for us too, um, and we'll get to that another time. But that's the Cliff Notes version of a handful of dramatic things that I hope you never have to go through. But I also know that some of you have been through things far worse than any of that. Um, and and that, that's just a reality. I know each of you have your own stories. They're probably similar. But stuff like that does live with you. It stays with you. And, and then when you add to that moments for us, like where we're ministering to others, and we hear things that are just like insane to hear, like who is even... What is going on? Like one, I remember one day we were in kids club and there was a six-year-old girl at our kids club and we asked for prayer requests because we always would do that. We had like these small groups with kids and this girl asked for prayer for her brother and we said, oh, is your brother sick? And she said, no. We said, well, what's up? What's wrong with your brother? And she said, well, my mom's boyfriend got mad and he burned down the house and my brother was in it. Six-year-old kid, that's, that was the prayer request at kids club. I'm like, okay. Or another friend of mine who's sitting in his living room with his two kids and his brother, when one day the local drug dealer just comes in and shoots his brother in the head and kills him, and right in front of his kids, this guy's kids, and then leaves. All these are stories we've heard, and way more, in just the short amount of time that we've been here. And it's moments like that where you're just hit with this re- looming reality that, I can't fix this. I can't fix this. There's a Hebrew phrase, the phrase is tikkun olam. And it means to fix the world. See, God made several covenants with his people in the Old Testament. Promises of a Messiah. Promises that one day a Messiah would come and he would fix it. Promises of a great nation. Promises to never flood the earth again. That was a covenant. Promises that one day he would bring everything wrong to right. He would make it right. He would restore it. He would fix the world. So when we, as the church, participate in tikkun olam, we are participating in, or we are partnering with God, linking arms with God in that, in his fixing of the world. And for the Jewish people, there are actually two views of what exactly this phrase means and how you get there. The orthodox view is actually a little bit more loaded. It has to do with overcoming and removing all forms of idolatry in your life, which we'll come back to that in a bit because there's a lot we can learn from that. But most, but for most people, kind of the more understanding, the more common understanding is that it's laid out relatively plainly. We're supposed to make our lives about repairing the world. So two of the Jewish staples are that. The first is that we welcome the stranger, and the second is that we repair the world. We leave it better than we found it. That's tikkun olam. Russell Resnick says it like this. Basically, he says that this is the idea. The idea is that we can reverse the cycle of sin 
which we'll talk about more on that in the very end today. But we can reverse the cycle of sin and corruption in the created order and contribute to the fulfillment of God's purposes for creation. So he's saying that the world is this way and it's a cycle, but we can actually work to make it better. It's a concept that's actually connected to creativity, uh, to bearing the image of God by creating things that make the world function better. Um, flow better, make things more just, bring more justice, more peace, make more saturated with love. It's very similar to that concept that we get in, in Isaiah 58 that we read earlier when it says, we'll be the repairers of the breach. It's like if you can just focus in on the broken, then, we'll act, then God will actually do something in us that allows us to be that, the fixers. And that's not just spiritually. Like it's, it's easy to get caught up on spiritual things and it's very important because spiritual things matter greatly. But there is a social aspect to the Bible as well that cannot be ignored. Isaiah 58 is talking about rebuilding a literal physical city, not just a spiritual one. The call is much bigger than that of just telling people the good news of Jesus while leaving them in the bad news of their reality. But the problem with that is it's a mission that we're literally incapable of doing. Like, how we, we have no way to do it. How in the world can we do it? And until we realize and come to terms with the fact that we can't fix it all, we're never going to be able to fix it at all. And here's what I mean by that. This, this helped me understand what happened. Like, like we just went through something uh, as a church that helped me understand a little bit more about like what happened in Hurricane Sandy and how I processed that and how I processed it wrongly, to be honest. See, we're all part of a global mission. But we're entrusted with a very local mission. We're all entrusted to be, you know, to be neighbors, to be neighborly, to help our neighbors, to be a part of the community that we're in. Um, and it can be very easy to, in trying to fix the whole world, which we should try to do to a degree, but it's, it's very easy we can do that and lose sight of the things that are most important and are right in front of us. It's important to not lose sight of what ultimately needs to be done, but at the same time we need to be able to focus and say, okay, okay, this is what I can do. So for example, a couple weeks ago, we did Joy to the D. Many of you were here. We, we had no idea how, how many kids would go to Joy to the D. The year before that, we had uh, ended up having 900 people go through here. We gave 650 kids a Christmas. This was in 2018. Uh, really successful day for us. Way more than any had been before. Um, I mean, way bigger than it had ever been before. So we didn't know, but we, but we were confident that if 1,000 kids showed up at Joy to the D this year, we'd be able to give all of them a Christmas and a really good one because we had amazing toys and we had amazing partnerships that allowed us to do that this year. So we had an amazing day. But even more than 1,000 showed up. In fact, we actually had enough toys to give 1,400 kids a present and more than 1,400 kids showed up. And we actually were able to really give 1,400 kids an awesome, really great Christmas. The parents were really, really excited. But suddenly the church, who honestly was only motivated to help other people, uh, but, but we definitely underestimated what the response would be this year because it had never been that big. In some of these situations, we're actually the villain in some of these kids' stories who had sat outside in the cold and then had to be turned away because we'd run out of things. Now, in hindsight, there are things that we can do better in the future to not, not let that happen again, um, and we will. But the response was so overwhelming, it was bigger than we were equipped for. Now, 
we, th- it's not cause to mourn. That, in all honesty, like we should be rejoicing for the most part. We gave 1,400 kids a really great Christmas, and that's where I want us to focus, right? 1,400 smiling kids, 1,400 awesome experiences. We are able to do that. But even in those 1,400 smiling kids' faces who went home and had this Christmas and their parents could actually give them that they wouldn't have been able to give them before that, even in that situation, right, there's always bigger needs that we can't meet. We can't give all those families an apartment. Some of those families need an apartment. We, we can't pay all those families heat bills. Sometimes, they, very often people ask, can you pay heat bills? And we have to say, no, we, we don't have enough money to just pay all your heat bills. Like, as much as we love to do that for everybody. That's why sometimes at Christmas, and we did it this year too, actually we always do it a little bit, sometimes more than others, we actually take a few families and give them a full Christmas where like we'll get them a tree and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll fill it with toys and presents and uh, you know, whatever it might be. We give families beds sometimes and different things to just really show the love of Christ to people uh, in like a radical, radical way, uh, just sort of do for a few what we wish we could do for everybody. Um, that's why sometimes we do that, um, but we can only do that for a few and it's a lot of hard work, but, but it's easy to get to realize, well, we did this, but yet we can't do it bigger. But Jesus says it himself. He says, the poor you'll have with you always. No matter how many needs you meet, there's always going to be more needs tomorrow. No matter how many problems you solve, another problem will follow that. No matter how many mouths you feed, somebody still is going to go hungry. Like take, for instance, the family we helped at Christmas a few years ago during Joy to the D. Um, we gave their whole family this huge Christmas and it was amazing and the story that came back was it's actually one of my favorite stories of how excited they all were about this and then a few weeks later something happened uh, government or what exactly happened we don't know mom has to go back to Mexico and then all the kids go back to Mexico and dad is still here staying working and sending money home right we could give them a Christmas but we couldn't keep their family together and now that's where me as a human and uh us as pastors, find ourselves the most broken. And particularly for me, I'm kind of, I'm an anxious person. I, I mean, like, I suffer greatly from anxiety, and, and that, I'm going to do a whole teaching on that later in this series. And it's grown in my life the more I've tried to take care of things in my own strength that I know I can't actually take care of. Um, things, and every time I try, I'm just reminded of how out of control all of it is beyond me. But that's why we're anxious. We're anxious because we, we want it to be this way, but instead it can only be this. Every single year in January, I, uh, I always look at what Paul says in Galatians 6, 9. So you've, you've probably heard this verse here a million times. He says this, 9 and, this is 9 and 10 actually. It's, let us not grow weary of doing good. So don't, don't get tired. It's hard, but don't get tired. Keep doing good. For in due season... We will reap if we do not give up. So then, he says, so then we have opportunity. So, as we, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. So in verse 9 and in verse 10, uh, we get the word due season and we get the word opportunity. Uh, and, and, and it's actually the same Greek word in both those times, due season and opportunity. It's the word kairos. Uh, it's, a, it's a Greek word for time. See, the Greeks had a couple different concepts um, of time, a couple different ways to talk about time and how they viewed time. The first word was the word chronos, as in like chronological order. Uh, it, it means time as we think of it. It's time on a, a watch. It's, time, it's, it's 11.58 uh, a.m. on Sunday, January 5th. Like that's chronos. 
Um, those types of things. And the, the Greeks actually, they depicted Kronos as this, as this old man with like a grim reaper style like scythe uh, in his hand like he's coming for you. And he always has an hourglass that's like dripping sand through it, basically saying, time is coming to get you. By the end of this, you're going to be dead. That's essentially the image. Death awaits us all. I mean, this dude is exactly why people live so anxious, because they think of time this way, and he's this grim reaper, and he's like, if I, don't, if I don't achieve this thing or get to this place by this time, then I blew it, or I, it was a waste, or whatever it is. That's, that's anxiety exactly. But this is so huge. Uh, when life doesn't happen in the time way, timeline that we think it is, the time frame that we think it is, we go a little bit crazy. It's very, very, very frustrating. But it's so significant that, that Paul does not use the word chronos here when he talks about these seasons and these opportunities in Galatians. Instead, he chooses another word for time, and that's the word kairos. Now, kairos is depicted almost the exact opposite of chronos. Kairos is a young man, where chronos is a very old man. So kairos is a young man, and he has, a, um, he has wings, and he has a bunch of hair on the front of his head, but he's bald in, his, in the back of his head. And it was said to be the way, the, that way, it was said to be that way because the Greeks um, was, said that Kairos was the opportune moment opposing the fate of man. As in like, your fate is that time is slipping away, but Kairos is that moment, uh, that's, it's a divine moment. It's a moment where all of a sudden something amazing can happen. But the way that they said it was, you had to grab it before it passed. See, when it's in front of you, you can grab that hair. But once it passes you, there's nothing to grab onto anymore. There's nothing to grab hold of. So the only way that you can be, that you can miss that moment is to be in another moment. That's why, again, anxiety is so destructive. It's the inability to be in a moment. And so you're sitting there and you're worried about tomorrow and you're worried about yesterday right as today passes you right by and the good you could do in today just goes right by and all of a sudden you can't grab it anymore. But Paul tells us in Galatians, first of all, he says, don't stop doing good because that moment in which things are made right, are made whole, that moment when tikkun olam does happen, that is coming. That payoff is coming. Better days are coming. But then he says this, using the same exact word. He says, but every chance you get, every kairos you get, do good for everyone. Every chance you get, tikkun olam. You know, a lot of people in these last few days particularly have been anxious, worried, scared, about the possibility of another war. After the killing that took place this, this week and then the threats we keep reading about vengeance that's coming and all these different things and we don't know what's happening. It's a broken world. We live in a broken world. And as long as it's broken, there will be war. There will be people hurting one another. There'll be people killing one another. But just because something inevitably exists does not mean that we go along with it or accept it as the way that it should be. The world functions this way because it's broken. And it's the job of the church. It's, it's not to feed the broken system. The job of the church is to repair the breach and to pave a better path forward and a path that actually leads people to Jesus. Church, we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for those who consider themselves to be our enemies. 
Love can win the day in 2020. It can win the day. But it's really important that we're careful of what we let the state of the world do to the state of our hearts and the state of our minds. Because everything has an impact. Everything you see and hear is vying not only for your attention, but also for a place in your heart. If your worldview can be molded by something that culture tells you or something that the news tells you, they're going to be able to get you to do anything. That's why we put on the armor of God, as uh, Paul says in Ephesians. That's why, as Romans puts it, he says you need to be transformed by the renewing of your minds, constantly reminding yourself all, all the time of the way of Jesus and that the way of Jesus is not the way of the world. When you read about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, you find that not only is our battle not against flesh and blood, but also that the only real weapon that the church has is our capacity to suffer and to persevere through that suffering. Keeping the faith in the middle of a world that's going to come at us in every direction. And it's going to make us want to respond with the same exact tactics that are coming against us with. But Jesus tells us it is the meek who shall inherit the earth. Not, it's, he doesn't say the weak. He's not saying people who are weak inherit it. He, to be meek is to have strength under control. It's gentleness. It's like the, the, one of the images I love is like, is like when we put our daughter on a horse. A horse is big enough he could throw her off at any moment and literally crush her. But yet the horse controls its strength and instead gives this child the time of her life as he gives her a ride. Like that's, that's, that's controlled strength. That's meekness. Drew sent me a text message a few days ago. Because uh, and because he was it was funny because he was confused because Don and I taught a few weeks ago um, and we mentioned Takun Olam and we began this concept said hey we're going to frame this out for you later on and he'd written down some notes about it and he said hey was this you that said this I wrote this down but I don't remember who said it uh, and I'm like yeah we started teaching that we're going to teach about it soon and uh, I, and I said yeah we're about to talk about it now and and he said that he had just watched the Mr. Rogers documentary and I hadn't seen this I still haven't seen the Mr. Rogers documentary. Uh, so I had no idea about this when we began introducing this concept to you all. Um, but I looked up the clip he was talking about, and the clip is Mr. Rogers. Um, after so Mr. Rogers was retired, and after 9-11, he came out of retirement to make a statement, to kind of make like a last thing that he said. And um, now Mr. Rogers, typically, he'd always say great things that were rooted in biblical principles, but he didn't preach. He wasn't religious. I, it was more just like, love your neighbor, be, you know, it, it was good stuff, but it was, it was rooted right, but it wasn't specifically or directly religious. But on this last thing, when he comes out of retirement, he goes on TV, national TV, and he straight up tells the entire nation, we are called to be tikkun olam, repairers of creation. It is the heart of God church, in the midst of the most broken of times. We need more voices saying more things like that in our world. But one thing that's just fascinating that we need to understand about this with, with Tikkun Olam is the Orthodox Jews have this bit of a spin on it that's a little bit different perspective of what it means. They say, actually, it doesn't just come from fighting social justice. You should fight those things, and we definitely believe in that, but it's actually a little bit bigger than that. Um, 
We live with a sense of conviction that we, we do what we can to repair the world. But to them, they said it doesn't come by just solving every single problem that every single person has. They would say that tikkun olam comes by overcoming all forms of idolatry, by forsaking your idols. Now, don't get caught up in the word idols. I'm not talking about like little statues that we're worshiping and bowing down to. An idol is anything you put on a pedestal. It's anything that you give pro- placement in your heart. It's the thing that you let have your heart. And where I do believe there's kind of validity to, to all these views of this, if you ignore the orthodox view, you actually can really get some of this backwards. See, the ancient idea was never just about fixing the problem. Like you have this problem and you have that problem because you're going to fix this problem and then there's just going to be another problem. That's how, it's like you're stuck on a, tre- a tre- uh, treadmill or a hamster wheel. It's just, you can do it, you'll spend your whole life trying to do it and you won't actually get where you, where you want to go. It was, but the, the point is actually about undoing the world as it is. So part of the Jewish understanding of sin, and this is very fascinating, particularly when it comes with the concept of tikkun olam, was the concept was that when Adam ate the fruit, the story we all know, what happened was sin, when he, when he ate the fruit, was actually mixed in now with the world. It's like if you have a jar of ink, and you smash that jar of ink on the ground or it falls off and you break it, you're going to try to gather maybe some of it because it was whatever, probably better if it was like some valuable perfume or something. You're trying to, no, it's mixed in with all these shards of glass and brokenness and like what do you do? It's all mixed together. Some of the language uh, used to describe it is actually the process of something being broken and the shards, uh, they're just spread out everywhere. It, and, like I think of it like this. I actually almost thought about bringing like a, a pitcher of water up here to do this, but I, didn't, I, I was lazy and I didn't do this part. Um, but it's like if you're making a drink that, you know, we all make those drinks where you take water and you mix the powder in, like the, the teas or whatever, and then all of a sudden the whole thing becomes red or whatever the color is. Um, uh, you, you stir it, right? You put it in and then it stirs together, right? Once it's stirred in that water, it would be impossible to now separate that water from that powder. It's mixed in. It's everywhere. It's there. So the question now becomes, how do we now, in all of this brokenness, where it's all mixed together, work toward wholeness? Because it's all this collective piece, all at one piece. And, 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 And you all know this, the story of Adam is the story of us. We're living in the same world with the same brokenness all mixed in right alongside that which is good and we're trying to navigate how to make a life out of it and how to do good when there's more than enough opportunities to do evil to retaliate to respond in the same way that we're treated the idea then becomes how do we go about this world in which everything is mixed and begin the process of overflowing that which is worldly with that which is good and that which is sacred and that which is whole and doing our absolute best to to sort of like drown out the parts that are motivated to harm you rather than make you whole. And though we cannot eliminate the bad, you can't get rid of it all. We can saturate the world with good. We can do our best to drown out as much of the bad as we can and overcome darkness with light. And that's what the church is called to be. The church is called to go into dark places and to illuminate a light that brightens the place up. Darkness can't stand in the presence of light. And I think that's the part 
where this, this thing about stripping away your idols really takes shape. Because we cannot remove everything toxic that lives in the world. But we can choose where we place our attention. We can choose where we focus our minds. We can choose what we put in our cups. Whatever's good. Whatever is noble. Whatever is just. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is commendable. Whatever is excellent and worthy of praise. Paul says, think on these things. You know, it's super easy to focus your mind on all the things that are in pieces. It's literally the definition of anxiety. It's to be in pieces. It's so easy to be like, I can't, I can't put it all together and, and distract your life. And as we enter this new year, I want to encourage you, don't think about that stuff. Think about what's good. Think about what's noble. Think about what's just. Think about what's pure. Think about what's lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. Because if you focus on all the broken all the time, it's not going to fix it. It's only going to rob you of the moment that is right in front of you. But if you're focused on what is good, you can do more good. Focusing on the brokenness is the only way you miss Kairos. And I'm not saying you ignore it because we are here to fix it. But the, the only way you miss Kairos and the only way you miss the opportunity to actually do good is if you're focused on everything that went wrong in your life from before. And I understand that it's not as simple as that. And that's why we're taking, we're gonna take the time that we're taking to go through all this because we want to sort through it. Like I have had things, like um, I was talking to Chris earlier, he was talking about how Dallas Willard has, has a quote about the cross and he says, the cross is a great place to visit, but it's no place to live. And we've had things that happened to us. I mean, even in this last, in this last year where we've just basically lived there. We've lived at the cross. And, and it, it's, if you've got to live anywhere, when you're broken, that's definitely the place to live because Jesus died for the things that we've screwed up and the things that we messed up and the things in our lives that are no good. He, he died for that. But at some point, we've got to find some wholeness so that we can be who we're supposed to be in the world. You know, I, I read this, um, the Bible app. You guys remember with the Bible app? It's, it's like millions and millions of people read the Bible on this app that um, Life Church put it out. And they, they, they posted this thing that said the most read scripture on their app from these millions and millions and millions of people that have their app in 2019 was actually two verses before the one that I just read for you in, in Philippians. And it, it, it said that Philippians 4, 6 was the most read passage in the entire Bible for the entire year in 2019. And that's the passage that says, don't be anxious about anything. But with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let it be known to God what is going on in your heart. And he'll give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. And he'll guard your heart and he'll guard your mind. So the most read verse in the entire year is the one that says, don't be anxious about anything. Can you, does that tell you where the world is? Don't worry about tomorrow. Trust God. Trust that God will do right by you and he will make good on his promises. You know, Psalm 89 tells us that God's throne is made of righteousness and it's made of justice. And if we truly believe that that is true, we don't need to be the loudest voice crying for vengeance. We need to be the collective body living the love of Jesus. The love that literally was willing to die for the people who were killing him and who killed him. That's the gospel that we're called to live.
And to me, that's courage. That's courage. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that we are yours. You've got us. You've scooped us up. And you want wholeness for us in all of the little broken places that we carry through from last year and the year before, from years that we don't even realize or recognize. God, help us to lay it at the feet of Jesus and leave it there and go live a whole life. We love you. Amen. You guys, Jesus already died. It's not more of a burden for him to take your brokenness. 2019 was really hard for a lot of people. I mean, if you had an easy 2019, come hang out with me. I would like your anointing. I just, I have not talked to anyone that was like, oh yeah, that was a great year. Okay, I did talk to one person. I was like, not fair. Let's hang out. Um, it was a hard year. 2020 is going to be awesome. But we are going to have to work through some stuff. And I mean, we're not going to do like a psychological evaluation and work through like PTSD and trauma, but we're going to talk about it because that stuff is so real. And the way that it impacts you, we want to talk about spiritually, what do we do as a church? How can we support people? We're here to takum alam. We have to show up in people's lives. When Hurricane Sandy happened, it was like the day before Halloween, and I will never forget the people in my church family saying, you need a break, come to my house, that's all put together, and come trick-or-treating. And I was angry. In my current state of trauma, I couldn't escape and enjoy anything. And I was frustrated saying, why can't you just see that there, I'm going through trauma? My whole neighborhood is inside out. We literally had sand up to here. The water was coming out of the basements and then going right back in because the sand. And so we were out there with, I had a seven month old baby strapped to me and I was digging because we needed to get down to the drainage system. So every house that drained water, we'd dig, and the whole neighborhood was out there digging a trough down the street, drainage to drainage, and it just kept filling up, and we just kept digging. And my friends were going, you should go trick-or-treating, and I'm going, how could you at a time like this? When we go through things, and people want to support us, they don't know what to do, and we're going, how could you at my in my life like this the fires in australia 12 million acres it's like the biggest fire the world has ever recorded something like it's bonkers and we're just like there's a fire in australia as big as manhattan like we're just clueless i mean 480 million animals are dead like australia is changing as we speak it's out of control they're taking people by navy ships to get them off the islands it's crazy, and they go through their trauma, and we live our lives. Because my house isn't on fire as far as I know. Could be, could be, right now, we're in Detroit. It could be, but it's not. So I live a peaceful life, separate from your trauma. And when we become tangible in our own sense, 
And, and we'll talk about the lament of Job and how he responded to suffering. And he said, I'm hurting. And that made him physically tangible to himself and what that does for us. And then when someone comes and says, okay, I see you're hurting and recognizes your physical tangibleness, just like you did your emotions as a tangible thing, what that does for us and why that's so important. We'll talk about anxiety and depression and, and, and just all kinds of loss, suffering. We all go through it. And if you're telling me at any point in your life you've not experienced some of that, you're either a robot, it's 2020, that could happen, or you're lying. And that's okay, we can get through that. That's a sin, but your suffering isn't sin. And we want to help people in our community come alongside of them. The thing that we wanted most when we were there in our suffering at Hurricane Sandy and everybody was like, go trick-or-treating. I just wanted somebody to recognize that I was going through something, that my neighborhood was going through something, and to carry on. I'm in my mind thinking there's like how many people in New York City and they can't just cross the bridge into the Rockways and take a cup of sand and put it back at the beach. That would have taken care of the whole thing. And I'm frustrated thinking about trying to solve the problem. I didn't need my problem solved. FEMA, government, everybody was helping and taking care. The church was helping and taking care of that. I needed somebody to recognize that what I was experiencing was tangible. Just recognize it, not do anything about it. Recognize it. And when someone shares a story of suffering with you, just saying, whoa, that sucks. That's kind of hard. I can't imagine what you're going through. Recognizing and feeling the empathy that we go through, doing that active thing that we're made to do, how much healing that brings. And guys, that is what the church is designed to do and to be even in our own suffering. It's beautiful. We will talk about it through the next several weeks. If you're not suffering, then you can just show up and help the rest of us who are suffering. <laughs>